Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Please note that some listeners may find the content of this show upsetting. Due to the often sensitive nature of discussion, this show is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. Today I'm talking to Penelope Gibbs, radio producer turned magistrate. She set up the Voluntary Action Media Unit at Time Bank before joining the Prison Reform Trust to run Out of Trouble, which was a five-year campaign to reduce child and youth imprisonment in England and Wales. Under her watch, the number of children in prison in the UK fell by a third. Since 2012, she has been working with Transform Justice, a charity aiming to help create a better justice system in the UK, a system which is fairer, more open, more humane and more effective. The problem with teenagers is they're not very good at doing crime, so they're easily caught. And so that led to a lot of teenagers being arrested for quite minor stuff. And when the government abandoned that, that was also a whole help to the system. So we're going into quite a cerebral place today with Penelope, so brace yourselves. We're going to be exploring the semantics of crime, punishment and the language used. Why does this matter so much? Welcome, Penelope. Can you tell us in your words exactly what you do? I'm Penelope and I run a charity called Transform Justice and it's trying to do kind of what it says on the tin, which is to transform the justice system in England and Wales. And particularly that's about reducing imprisonment, having a fairer system. And I have sort of fallen into this, though I'm now passionate, having spent most of my career in the media. And you were trained as a magistrate? Trained, Edwina. Trained. <laughs> that was my first mistake. Lots of training, right? Magistrates get two days training. And, you know, what's terrifying about doing the work I do now is that you know what you don't know or you didn't know. So the idea that I was sitting there as a magistrate with the kind of amount of knowledge I had at the time is just terrifying. It was about 10 years ago that I did it, yeah. Mm. That's not that long ago. I know, but I had the inclination that we shouldn't be too punitive. But beyond that, I was absolutely and totally vague about what happened when they walked out the door. And you also used to work for the Prison Reform Trust and um, you successfully helped to reduce um, child and youth imprisonment. Of course, single-handedly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your superhero cape is waving behind you. I mean, it's often really difficult working in uh, campaigning in the criminal justice system because nothing seems to go in a progressive direction. But what was fantastic about actually happening on that 
campaign is it did work. And it's still a sort of little known fact. I was recruited to work on this single project to reduce the numbers of children and young people in prison uh, in this country. And in the end, we focused on under 18 year olds, which we call children. We're going to talk about language later. And now there are a third of the number there were in prison than when I started that campaign. So it really, it wasn't just us. We were a force within many, but it was fantastic to work on something where we did reduce imprisonment so much. And there is no, there's practically nothing good about putting a, a teenager, a child in prison. Mm. So the more we have out, the better. And how exactly, if you could put it into a large nutshell or a medium-sized nutshell how did it happen because I think you know for our listeners to say that you managed to get that population down and create such an incredible change because it really is a success story within the system it's huge. I mean the system gets a lot of bashing yeah but and we're very bad at celebrating the amazing stuff that's done and that really was a coup it was huge there was just this fortunate series of forces at work so The Youth Justice Board, which is an agency run by the government to help with the youth justice system, had some really good leaders there who also wanted to do the same thing. And I think that what we focused on was what what we referred to as the decision to imprison. It's going to be too difficult to say to the government that community sentences need to be completely changed for children. So we just said, let's push on the fact that imprisoning children is totally and utterly ineffective and damaging for them and try and get the decision makers, which is mainly magistrates and district judges, to just simply shift their attitude to whether particularly a short prison sentence is worth it. And you only need a sort of certain shift when you've got small populations. I have to say it's still... I mean, there are now, uh, I don't know, like 700 children in prison. So we're not talking about huge numbers and a little shift can make a big difference. And I think everybody, all the leadership were all singing from the same hymn sheet, which is where communication is so important. And then we also got a tiny shift in legislation in court, which I actually think is a sort of nudge thing. It made a huge difference, which is that the magistrates when they used a prison sentence in the youth court, they were told that they had to say why they'd used the prison sentence rather than the alternative. So the alternative is always on the table, is always available, and they had to stand there and say, you know, we thought the alternative was no good because of X, Y, Z. So they're almost having to prove that they'd thought about every single option. Exactly. And they have to... in. Uh, you know, in court, justify imprisoning a child. And I think that was was quite powerful as well. But there was also um, the police had targets which were called offences brought to justice under the height of new labour. And they were just simple targets about basically arresting as many people as possible. And the problem with teenagers is they're not very good at doing crime. So they're easily caught. And so that led to a lot of teenagers being arrested for quite minor stuff. And when the government abandoned that, that was also a whole help to the system. So why did you become a magistrate in the first place? Weirdly, it was because of being a radio producer. So as a radio producer, uh, I worked on Woman's Hour. 
and we had kind of areas of expertise. And one of the ones I looked at was justice. And I kept being involved in these programs and discussions where I was getting really hit up because I kind of thought I've you know I really think it needs to change I need to do something about it and it's interesting because instead of actually leaving at that point and saying you know I should join charities because that the BBC you have to be balanced and there's a limit to what you can do about it I thought do the right decisions go and be a magistrate where they're actually making the decisions so that you can make the difference and I applied it takes a year and a day and it did take a year I mean it took about two years to get through and that was the reason why I have to say actually doing it was slightly disappointing in some ways it's a very important role but the courts are incredibly inefficient you spend a lot of time sitting out but you also spend a lot of time actually in bits of the process which you think don't need to be done in a courtroom and so at the end of the day you think what have I actually achieved some of the time does it feel like a little bit of a theatre? I mean, in my limited experience of being in courts, and, and certainly the Crown Courts are quite theatrical in their architecture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a bit theatrical. The magistrates court much less so. And it's formal and you don't get much of the backstory of the people you're dealing with and so on. So what exactly does a magistrate do? I mean, the interesting thing is it, it's not a job... It's not a full-time role. It's a volunteer position, really, and a, actually it's little known. And they are volunteers from the community who are appointed to be magistrates who do it maybe one day a week, maybe once every two weeks a day. And they, you sit in the courts, the magistrates' courts, and the magistrates' courts actually deal with, I don't know, 95% of all criminal cases in this country, and you sit on a bench of three and you decide about what sentence people should get you do trials all of a certain kind of seriousness of crime obviously the most serious crimes go up to the crown court but they deal with imprisonment as well and it is the bulk of cases what's the ratio between the amount of sort of men you see compared to the amount of women you see in a magistrate's court is it significant Actually, the, the gender mix is good. The diversity is not good. Oh, so, you're talking about the magistrates themselves? Yeah. Right. Oh, you mean in the... Actually, both. So, yeah. yeah, from the magistrate's side and then the people that you might see that you might be sentencing. The gender split for the magistracy is more or less 50-50. And obviously, in terms of who they see as defendants, the, the majority are men or boys. So... There is a disparity there. I'd say the bigger disparity is about class and age. So magistrates tend to be over 50 and defendants tend to be young. And class-wise, magistrates are, like myself, really middle class. And that's not the case for defendants. So I think there's a real problem there of representation, which I didn't really help with. Yeah, ripe for reform. Reform, a really good recruitment drive and so on, mm. yeah. Which seems possible, right? So, I mean, my cup's always half full and I sort of think, how difficult could it be to get a mix in? Why is it so difficult? It's difficult because, to be honest, I, I, don't, I just don't think it's a priority for the government and they need to put, they not a lot of money, but they need to put some resources into mm. it and some imagination and get some expertise in and that's not happening. So how long were you a magistrate before you then went into your sort of current role with Transform Justice? 
Actually, I stopped being a magistrate before I started at the Prison Reform Trust. So I was only a magistrate for three years and I didn't sit that often. So it was, you know, it was an experience, but I didn't do it for that long. And then you set up Transform Justice. How soon after leaving Prison Reform Trust? Immediately, right. immediately, yes. Like seven years ago. Yeah. Good old dates. <laughs> and what was the what's the main purpose of Transform Justice? Tell me a little bit about why it exists and what you hope to achieve through it. It it's like a criminal justice think tank, but it's quite spiky, I would say. What it's trying to do is throw light on parts of the justice system, which obviously others aren't, otherwise there's no point duplicating what other people are doing, and to to advocate with government using the media for those solutions. I mean, it's a campaigning organisation, but it is very small. So we work on particular uh, subjects. So I've recently done a report on the overuse of remand for children. So that's being imprisoned when you are still saying you're innocent. And something like that, that even though it's gone down a lot because the child prison population has gone down a lot, they're definitely the case that we're still using prison as a kind of warehouse for children that we're worried about. What sort of percentage of the sort of youth estate would be on remand at any one time? It's huge. It's it's between 25 and 30 percent. Oh, wow. So it's much higher than adults. Yeah. yeah. And just for avoidance of doubt for the listeners, that is when a child is serving a custodial sentence and they might be found innocent. So they will have well, served time. Well, they're not serving a sentence. They're on no, remand. But they are inside a they, prison. Yeah, they they're definitely held. inside in a prison. Yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah. And obviously it's pretty stressful to be on remand because, I mean, it's stressful to have be imprisoned on a sentence but the problem with remand is that you're on tenterhooks a you never know when you might get out on remand because sometimes you you can get out before your trial but equally you're on tenterhooks as if you're going to get a sentence or not whether you're going to be convicted at trial and when you say a child you are still talking about 18 and younger because again this is where we come back to language and some people say youth some people say teenager some people say child so in this instance you're talking we're, about children we're actually on actually talking about under 18 year olds and okay. it's a, it's an interesting one about language because we always try to use the word children like people do. When they talk about child sexual exploitation, you're still talking about like 16 and 17-year-olds. And under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, they are they are children. And I think things like with kind of knife crime and so on, it's, it's important to keep saying children mm. because they are young and they're immature. Yeah, and for me, it's much more evocative saying child and children as opposed to youth. Yeah, teenager, which sometimes can be used in such a negative way, sort of. And some people use young offender or young people. And when you say young people, when you're referring to like a 16 year old, uh, you know, that's confusing, I think. Mm. So, no, I, I do use children, though, you know, some people then go, what do you mean? Mm. And this is a strand of your work, is it not sort of thinking about language and how best to talk about these issues? Because, of course, there's good ways and bad ways of discussing everything in life. So can mm. you elaborate a bit more on the kind of work you've been doing around sort of framing arguments and, and language? Yeah, and that's a bit different to the other kind of work that Transforms Justice has done. So around four years ago, I I think, you know, just having coffee with colleagues and so on, and we were discussing something we'd heard about, which was a, a new approach to communications called reframing. And I was already interested in communications and our 
our group feeling was that in terms of trying to get change for criminal justice, we were literally banging our head against a brick wall the whole time. And that, you know, even if you had a private conversation with somebody who could change policy, actually they then went out and did something which was maybe more punitive because they felt that that's what people wanted. So we were at our wits end, as it were, and it was across the board. And so we heard about this new approach and we thought, well, you know, these things are worth trying because clearly the way that we're communicating is not actually bringing people with us in terms of, you know, kind of less imprisonment, less sentences and so on. Can you give me an example of the sort of the do's and don'ts and the wrong type of language and the right type of language? I mean, for me, the word rehabilitation, I hate. I think it's toxic. But what <laughs> yeah. it, what example could you give on? I mean, I actually right wing, think an obsession with talking about prison is problematic because um, actually still the minority of those who commit crime are in prison at any one time. The rest are on community sentences. And If you talk to people um, who aren't experts in the criminal justice system, they just think that prison is the only punishment. And the other thing is that because it is a punishment, I mean, it is quite a severe punishment to go to prison. If you keep talking about prison, it actually triggers that belief in people that the only kind of way of reducing crime is to punish and to use prison. Mm. You know, obviously... We can't completely avoid mm. talking about prison. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? That- Absolutely. And also because um, the fact of the matter is a lot of community sentences are, have been proven to be more effective than prison. But yeah. it's such a complex, multifaceted problem. Yeah. And we have a very one-dimensional sort of debate about it, I think, most of the time yeah. as a sort of country. Absolutely. I mean, I think the other language which crops up quite often, which is problematic, is... If somebody says, okay, we want to reduce prison, but we'll use tough community sentences, that also doesn't work. Because the problem is as soon as you use any word which relates to punishment, people think punishment. And that's very political, isn't it? I feel that sort of politicians posturing to try and prove that they're, you know taking control and absolutely you know being really tough and we can't be soft and exactly but but in thinking that that is the way to get people to support say fewer short prison sentences or something like that I think they're shooting themselves in the foot because actually out there if you start talking tough people just think oh use prison you know if you're going to be tough Mm. why are you messing around with community sentences so I think you still need to kind of talk up community sentences but not using that kind of language. So give me an example of how you would change the narrative and the words around sort of an obsession on prison to sort of something else because I think a lot of the time we know what's wrong but then it's difficult to explain what language we'd move to. It might be easy just to sort of describe the process a bit that we went through to come to these new messages. So there's an organisation in the States called the Frameworks Institute who are the sort of pioneers of this very research-based way of looking at changing messages. And the first thing they did was really, really in-depth interviews done as an anthropologist would with people about what causes crime, how to reduce it and so on. And that got to a point where 
uh, it kind of uncovered the deep-seated beliefs that people have about crime and punishment. And that's key because what we want to do is work around those deep-seated beliefs that people have, have. So, for instance, in terms of what causes crime, a, a very strong belief um, is that people are rational and they make a rational individual choice to, to commit a crime on the basis of the uh, benefit it will bring to them. Uh, and then they weigh it a bit with the possible chance to get caught and the sanction. Now, that doesn't meet anybody's experience who works with those who commit crime. Even crimes like fraud, if you meet people who've committed fraud, actually quite often it happens as a result of a series of events in their life. So most crime is about a social context, or if you think about violent crime, a fight, you know, it just happens. There's no rational anything about that. But but the point about that belief is it's it's incredibly strong. And that belief leads people also to think that the answer is greater punishment. Because if you think people are making this kind of rational decision to commit a crime, then obviously you need to ramp up the punishment to, to get them to make a slightly mm. different choice. So what the research says is that we need to... That, that actually the negative stuff is, is quite important, that we need to avoid triggering that belief. So that means trying to avoid talking about crime as a choice, being kind of careful with the word agency, which is quite current, but agency also implies that people have a choice about what they're doing. And if you use that language, you, you just trigger that very, very strong belief that people have. So I think the negative stuff is important as well as the positive. On the positive side, what the idea is that you then try and move people towards those beliefs that they've already got, which are more positive and, and kind of fit a bit more with, you know, what where we would like people to believe. So people do have a belief that actually there are some social factors that cause crime. So people can see a connection between people living in poor neighbourhoods and crime and they can see a connection in terms of what the system can do well in terms of rehabilitation. There is a belief in it. So the idea of reframing, you know, first of all, and we'll get onto the some metaphors you can use, is don't try and contradict those beliefs that you don't think are right. Try and dwell on the beliefs like rehabilitation or, you know, there's a connection between poverty and crime, which actually help your message and really try and avoid talking punishment. They say you're not going to persuade people through facts and evidence. That's really interesting. Why not? Because that feels counterintuitive. It does. There's a really good book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And it's about the psychology of thinking. And basically what it says is we're lazy in our thinking. We actually just, most of the time, want to just go back to our old beliefs and ideas. Unless it's their specialist subject, people just don't engage with facts. Mm. They just don't, you know, it, it just bounces off them. You can use facts and evidence, but in order to get people, you know, involved in them and taking them in in any sense whatsoever... 
you need to use values and metaphors because they're the kind of things that kind of stick in people's minds. So even if you think about uh, metaphors we use in everyday life, you say, oh, I'm feeling down. That is actually a metaphor mm. because you're not actually down. Mm. The thing about metaphors as well is they often conjure up pictures in people's minds and pictures are also what people remember. Yeah. So it's not an elimination of facts of evidence. It's about saying if you're going to use them, you've actually got to prioritise having values and metaphors to set those up as a framework. I always reflect on the fact that the you know, the system is known as the criminal justice system. Yeah. And funnily enough, it's very criminal centric. Yeah. And actually it therefore sort of forgets the victims, which should sit centre stage to the justice system. Mm. And of course, by victims, we're talking about perpetrators as well as the victims themselves on the outside of the walls. But a lot of the people inside the walls are victims as well. And I sort of think, God, I'd love it if I could change one small thing for the system, it would be to drop the word criminal and just have it as the justice system because I think it's a small little thing but I think names matter and labels matter. They absolutely matter they matter all the time like calling people offender which I think just labels them and defines them. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can you expand a bit more on the metaphors you were talking about? We could think up metaphors about the criminal justice system. There already are some which are used, like University of Crime or Revolving Doors. There's a very problematic metaphor, which is prisoners a holiday camp. So they're already used, but frameworks uh, is is very keen on their evidence. So what they do is they generate possible metaphors in the knowledge of these belief system, and then they test them out on thousands of people to see how well they work to actually, well, basically to get people support for more progressive mm, policies. To like shift mindset, I Yeah, guess. and to support for things like reducing imprisonment. So they, in the end, came up with three metaphors, which tested well, which they thought would work well in this context. And I'll just talk about one because Anne Fox of Clinks did an article where she used one of them. So one of the metaphors is, is the gears metaphor. So, you know, we were talking about how nobody... 
thinks about anything in the criminal justice system apart from prison. And the idea of the gear metaphor is that we're saying, you know, that's just one gear for one purpose. There are other gears which need to be used. So the, the metaphor goes, just as a bicycle works best when it uses the right gear for the right terrain, our criminal justice system should use dr different resources for different situations. And Anne Fox was given an opportunity to write a column for The Times. And the headline of it was, imprisonment should be the fifth gear of the justice system. And she said justice system rather than criminal justice oh, system. And she says, if I drove my car in fifth gear most of the time when the conditions didn't suit, its performance would be affected. Imprisonment should be the fifth gear of the criminal justice system to use in certain circumstances. But if the car's been driven in fifth too often, it's like the overuse of imprisonment getting the wrong people in with the wrong sentences. So that's an example of, I mean, it's quite a sophisticated metaphor, but I think it does work because you you get anybody who, who kind of gets into the mind of gears goes, yeah, you would use different things for different purposes. You don't want to overuse them. And the idea of the kind of reframing program that we are running at Transform Justice is to get as many people in criminal justice charities to use these values and metaphors as much as they can so that we can all kind of work together to try and change the debate on, on criminal justice as a whole. So that's an example. There's also one which I think is very easy to use. That, that one needs a bit of explaining, but I think it works well. The other one is prison is a dead end. And, you know, for the purposes of, of trying to persuade to reduce imprisonment, I think that that just says it all really because it stops so much for people and then there's one which is very evocative actually in terms of visually we call it crime channel and the idea is that people who get involved in crime are like they're in a rushing stream which they are finding it hard to get out of so sending people to prison for minor crimes is like pushing them into a powerful current that sweeps them further into crime channels. You know, what I was saying about people think that those who commit crime have made this rational choice to do that thing and they're an individual. And you think about people being swept along, that's kind of the opposite, isn't it? Mm, to the rational choice. Yeah. Exactly. And it's therefore irrational. You're in a context which makes it impossible for you to get out. And obviously, you can't say those words in terms of uh, messaging because people would resist them. But mm. I think you, it, that's why that metaphor's so clever, because you can actually use it. And also, again, I think that people then, it's sticky. People can see somebody being caught in a current mm. uh, in their mind when they think about people who commit crime. Exactly. So when we're talking about terminology and language, it, it can feel probably quite far removed from the man or woman sitting in her cell in a prison. But why does it matter so much that we get it right? I mean, we have the tabloid newspapers, we have radio, we now have social media. Why is this so important for us to get right? Because the policies are wrong. And uh, until we can you know, change the debate, we will still get policies being put through which are totally destructive. And do you mean 
the inflammatory language that a lot of tabloid newspapers might use, which therefore drives the politicians, which therefore informs policies. Therefore, actually, we're ending up with very dysfunctional policies because ultimately they've been produced, if you go really upstream, by inflammatory language from the media. I mean, I, I don't think anything's the media's fault. I think it's really easy to blame the media mm. in this circumstance. So what I think actually is, is happening is that we all hold these kind of beliefs like, you know, crime is a choice, including me, people in the media, including politicians, including ourselves, actually. You know, nobody's kind of perfect and doesn't hold some of these beliefs. And therefore... What's happening when the media is crying for higher sentences for people or the, the whole knife crime debate, you know, we should imprison them more and clamp down harder and so on, is actually stemming from their belief system. And, and they would probably say, well, that child has a choice whether to pick yeah, up that knife and carry they absolutely it. And probably, do. I imagine, and I'm not speaking as an expert on this yeah. subject at all, I'm sure that they would say, well, of course, it's not a choice. We're not safe and we have to carry these knives for our yeah. own protection. Yeah. I think the, the, the choice thing is everywhere. And um, equally, I think, I think a lot of politicians hold these beliefs as well, that prison is the answer and so on. And so... Even though the evidence says it's not. Exactly. Yeah. But the belief, you know, beliefs are really strong. And therefore, actually, it's a process whereby the media reinforces what the politicians believe. And then the politicians, re you know, say something which is, you know, kind of lock up more people. And then the media just reflects that. And it, it's just a... And then the public are have the belief system anyway. So I, I think that why we need to change the language, and it's a huge task, but what I see at the moment is actually we keep having new legislation, new crimes put on the statute book, and that's only going to increase the numbers in prison. So with the knife crime, there's a bill in Parliament at the moment called the Offensive Weapons Bill, and that makes it easier to imprison um, a teenager for mm. carrying a knife. In our sector, we keep saying, please don't introduce this new offence. And then other sectors, uh, you know, for instance, people whose loved ones have died on the road through another driver, they are campaigning for higher sentences for for the drivers who 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 kill um, or injure others. Now, I'm absolutely sympathetic to the idea that that harm and that you know devastation is terrible, and nobody should drive in such a dangerous way that they kill somebody else. But the idea that it will all be resolved mm. by higher sentences mm. has come from a charity. Yeah, and, and this for me is really key because when I am thinking, because I'm such a geek, I'm thinking about policy and legislation all the time in mm. this area. And when I'm sort of writing my speeches, I guess when I have to think about things quite deeply, it's this sort of area where emotion is creating the policy mm. when actually the political system and the policy makers need to rise above the emotion which is very difficult I understand that it's there you know I completely get some of the visceral awful things that have gone on but policy needs to be above that and it needs to be based on the research and the evidence and when the emotion creeps into shaping policy that's when you're going to get really ineffective. 
policies, I we, think, a lot of the time. Which is why the frameworks people, and, and I would say, we need to try and use this kind of technique to... I mean, I think they'd say that the emotion's always there, that you, you have to play the right emotions at the right time, mm. and particularly the right beliefs. It comes back to that thing that evidence and facts will never persuade. Yeah. Under any circumstances, really, unless you couch them with the right uh, kind of emotional language, values, whatever uh, we want to call it. So I actually think we need, we need to change the way we talk about it more than ever. The difficulty is, is getting enough of a voice, you know, in the media or whatever, to counteract the, the people who are going just lock up everybody, you know, that's the best way, they knew what they were doing. There's all these phrases, aren't they, you know, that imply that everybody who committed crime is 100% culpable. Yeah, do the crime, do the yeah, time. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly. quite a sort of blanket and it's like, what, so if I break a speed limit, I do the same time as the mass yeah. murderer? Yeah, the belief system is really strong. And as I say, you know, unless we kind of raise our voice a bit and start counteracting it, the politicians will continue. I mean, they're, you know, they're doing some good things at the moment in terms of talking about shorter prison sentences. Yeah, yeah there has been a bit of a shift. But in order to create the real shift, we need to get our messages a bit more clever, frankly, and get out there better. So, because um, I think our sector is a bit afraid as well. So, people who work in criminal justice charities, there are because you know the pushback is so great sometimes about you know oh you know everybody needs to be locked up and you know when you look at some crimes they are just absolutely terrible. So the other day, I, even I kind of thought, am I going to do this? But they um, there was the terrible murder in Scotland where the teenage boy raped and murdered a small girl, Alicia McPhail. And they identified the boy, so they named and shamed him in the media, which they didn't have to do. And that is very damaging for every prospect of, I will use the word rehabilitation, but it is for that boy. And, you know, I thought twice but someone before, immediately, yeah, because I even find myself... Exactly. ...thinking, well, what about her? What about her family? Interestingly, the family, never... the, the family didn't want him to be named. Mm. The media wanted him to be named. But, you know, I did accept to go and talk about it on BBC News and I used the rehabilitation kind of point you know I said if we want to create fewer victims in the future mm. we need to prioritize the best kind yeah. of rehabilitation he needs to become less dangerous somehow, exactly and he won't become less dangerous by if, being put in prison and let out a much more angry adult but it's not I mean it's the vilification it's the stigmatization it's it's the whole thing he's less likely yeah to mm. to to come out and reintegrate into society but Actually, the voice of people who come from our point of view is not as kind of loud as it needs to be. Just jumping back to terminology, when we talk about child exploitation, I remember, and this is something that shifted recently, that outcry when children who were groomed by the Rotherham gangs, they were being called child prostitutes. And that's problematic for obvious reasons. But can you elaborate a bit well, again, I mean, actually, it comes down to the choice thing, doesn't it? It implies that they were making that a deliberate... That they were deliberate, working the streets. But and, also yeah. that, that it was intentional and it was yeah. a deliberate choice yeah. that they made. 
But that kind of intentionality, that yeah. kind of, you know... I, for me, that was the first time that I really... The language thing really sort of hit me. I mean, it's always there and I'm always thinking about it, but child prostitute. I yeah. mean, come on. I know. You don't have to have even two brain cells to rub together to realise that that's an incredibly damaging, inflammatory, completely inaccurate, wrong thing to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. So is there anything that you can point to that has been done for years that really hasn't worked and has sort of backfired? Yeah, I'm afraid so. I mean, I think that criminal justice charities for a long time had used the sort of cost efficiency argument as in uh, we're going to persuade people to change the system by saying it's going to be cheaper if they do the right thing. So, for instance, we should use less prison because prison's very expensive. And that's kind and that of, comparison to Eton College and how much it yes, costs. Yeah. Exactly, all that. And actually, um, it cropped up all over the place in people's messaging. And I think partly they used it because they felt it was kind of safe to use the money argument. But in fact, they put that value into research and it, it wasn't even that uh, it didn't work for people. It actually backfired for people. So, In what way? Well, in the sense that if people were told, oh, we should use prison less because it's very expensive, their support for imprisonment actually rose. It increased. Right. It strengthened their support for imprisonment. We don't quite know why. Yeah. But I think that that is the power of when it and it wouldn't happen obviously for the nhs because people are bought in emotionally to the nhs in a different way but i think i don't know why it happens that way but basically what the what it said is don't say we should use less prison because prison is very expensive and it's interesting these things are interesting because that is one of the things which probably over time has made us less effective than we would want to be. Who are you trying to reach through the work of Transform Justice at the minute? With the reframing project, I'm, I'm really trying to work with other charities in what we call the criminal justice sector because I think that, um, you know, it, Transform Justice on its own will not have enough influence, even if I, you know, was used all this language all the time, I, I'm tiny. We need a, a sort of collective voice in order to even try and shift the debate. And um, my idea is if we can get criminal justice charities kind of smarter about using language and messaging and so on, then maybe we could move into, uh, uh, you know, other places like academia, academics, uh often use language which people don't understand and um into you know into government maybe mm. so what does sort of good look like what does success look like where would you like to get to with it all i mean success looks like i don't turn around and the next day have a new criminal justice offense or a higher sentence which is brought into the uh, parliament just like that because everybody thinks it's a great idea that's the ultimate success and the other success is reducing imprisonment for adults, you know, by a huge degree. You know, like I think we could halve our prison population without endangering public safety. Mm, I completely agree. So if people want to find out more about the work of Transform Justice, where do they go? How do they find out about you? And do you have a Twitter handle? All the rest of it. 
I'm probably too obsessed by Twitter and I do have a Twitter handle, which is Penelope Gibbs too. And also there's a website for Transform Justice and on the website, there's a reframing tab with lots of information about this project. It's really nice every now and again to sort of separate the emotions and I guess the heart work of crime, punishment, prisons and everything that entails and actually sort of get up in your brain a bit and think about the language that we use when we're talking about crime and punishment. It's incredibly emotional. It's very deep. Um, it can be inflammatory. It's hard and it's difficult. And actually, in life in general, words matter. But my God, they matter so much when you're trying to debate crime and punishment. It's, it's a really difficult thing. I've been really blown away by being able to talk to Penelope at length about the research and the evidence out there, the work of Frameworks and her organisation Transform Justice, because that really proves that there's an evidence base behind this, that the way we frame arguments and the way we talk about things matter a huge amount. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do share on your platforms. It's always great to spread the word. Do send to a friend. Our Twitter handle is at OST Charity. Or you can visit our website, which is onesmallthing.org.uk. And if there is one small thing that you can do for us, that would be to rate our podcast, preferably five stars. Thank you very much. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.